Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Here in Wildwood, New Jersey, a beautiful, quaint, kitschy beach town at the Jersey Shore where I have decided to rent a house just for a week with some close family members and friends that, uh, like myself, have all tested negative for the uh, COVID antibodies, so uh, trying to be as responsible as humanly possible but still uh, finding a way to participate in this year's World Series of Poker, as it were. Uh, So yeah, if you're in New Jersey or Nevada, you can participate in these bracelet events that are happening every single day. As this is being recorded on the afternoon of July 2nd, only the first day of these events has taken place so far. I can tell you I was extremely excited to jump in and participate and just give my life some semblance of being back to normal, which is, you know, it's July. We should be playing poker. So as you guys know, I've been really ramping up my online poker game. I've been working very hard playing on multiple websites, some of questionable legality (laughs) and some that are fully licensed and regulated uh, here in the state of New Jersey. I've been trying to have a career. Uh, Obviously, I can't do stand-up. I don't know when stand-up comedy is coming back. It just doesn't feel like it will be anytime soon, at least not in my area. Uh, In New York City, they they just keep pushing back the dates on when indoor dining and bars and entertainment venues such as Movie theaters, Broadway theaters, and of course, comedy clubs will be operational again. So rather than waiting around to get that career back, I've decided to focus most of my efforts on this one. I had a lot of fun on the very first day of the World Series of Poker. One thing that I've had to do because I'm not as keen on the online world, as you guys can probably tell from some of the questions I've asked our guests on recent podcast episodes. I can just picture some of you at home rolling your eyes at me. Like, how can you not know that that's how that works, Clayton? But anyway, uh, I digress. I've just been trying to figure out online poker as it stands today. I've noticed that in New Jersey, there are a lot of recreational players on the sites. As you can remember, now it's been over almost two months ago since Elliot Rowe recommended I even swim across the Hudson River if I had to, to participate in some of the really juicy online tournaments that were going on. Now, those aren't exactly the tournaments that I've been playing in. You know, last night, for example, I played in a $215 tournament, which I've come to understand is considered relatively high stakes online. Uh, Of course, the bracelet event, event number one, the kickoff, as they called it, 
was a $500 buy-in, but they also allowed for up to, I think, three re-entries. So I cashed in that event, by the way, guys. They got 1,195 players, and I finished in 64th place. So that was good for, I think it was a payout of 1650 So I won a little bit there. Um, I also played in the $100 buy-in, what they called the WSOP warm-up event, which had a $15,000 guarantee, which they absolutely crushed. I think the prize pool was 28000 something. Uh, I got first place in that event and won, I believe it was $5,260. So uh, the first day of the WSOP went really well. I cashed in the bracelet event. I won a side event. And I also cashed very small, min cashed in uh, one of the other tournaments. And then there were three tournaments that I played and didn't cash. So if I can keep that kind of rate of cashing <laughs> for, the, for the next month, I'm going to have a lot of money by the end of July if I can manage to cash in half of the, of the tournaments that I play. Uh, the games weren't exactly soft, the, especially the, the $500 bracelet event. There were some very good, very tough players. Uh, a lot of what I was doing, though, was kind of Googling my opponents and saying, okay, who is this and who is that? And fortunately, Poker News and some other websites can help you put together uh, exactly who else is at your table because of course it makes a big difference if I find out that somebody with a silly nickname is actually a you know full-time online crusher with eight million in career earnings I would treat that player much different than I would with someone who just signed up for wsop.com today for the first time I did see a few such names on the uh, site where there were players that had never actually played on the site before. They signed up because they were in Nevada or New Jersey, and they decided that they wanted to participate in the uh, bracelet event. So that kind of made it fun, but it didn't change the fact that many, many, many of the players on there were established professional players. So I was excited to do as well as I did. I had a few tough decisions uh, in that one. And ultimately, what got me was a bad beat all in with my ace-king versus ace-queen and lost a pot that would have given me about 180% of the average stack had I won the pot, which, of course, we know I was about a 75% favorite to do. Uh, I don't like to think that way, though, and I'm serious about this because you can drive yourself crazy if you just look at how you lose each tournament. You also have to look at some of the pot's where you got in uh, as a coin flip and you won, or maybe you even sucked out on somebody and you were the player putting the bad beat on another player. And sometimes we forget about those because they don't end the tournament, but you really remember you know, the last thing that happened. So yeah, even though I went out on a bad beat, I imagine that some other, some of my opponents would probably say that I had gotten lucky against them at some point just to get as far as I did. But yeah, it was pretty exciting. I mean, they had 1,195 players for a $500 tournament. And I don't know if that's how many players or how many entries there were, but I believe it's how many actual unique users. 
And then, as I mentioned, you could re-enter, I think, up to... It was either two or three re-entries that were permitted. So, anyway, it all resulted in a very large prize pool for a $500 buy-in with a first-place prize of $150,000 and the total prize pool being in the 800000 range. So, uh, kind of exciting. And if that's how things are going to go this whole month, then there should be some really interesting poker to be played and definitely some spots where uh, substantial money could be won or lost. So uh, I actually wanted to bring up, well, I want to talk a little bit about my approach. Uh, Obviously, I've been having some success lately. Uh, It may seem like all I ever do is post on Twitter that I won this tournament or that tournament. And that's true. I'm not, if I get sixth place in a tournament or even second place, in a tournament, I'm not going to post and you know expect all kinds of accolades. And to me, that's just because I only really care about the wins. I mean, of course, I care about the money when I don't win, but I really, you know, I kind of have my eye on the bracelet or just the title or just winning first place, especially on WSOP.com, which uh, to my liking actually offers a slightly more top heavy payout structure. As you guys know, I've said only half-joking many times on this podcast that I believe tournaments should all be winner-take-all. I would play a winner-take-all tournament, even if you told me there were going to be 100,000 buy-ins. I would play because I believe in the spirit of competition and in going for the gold, as it were, and trying to claim first prize. That's just how I am. As you guys know, I've said it many times, I'm not a huge ICM guy. I probably make some laddering mistakes along the way. Uh, I certainly take way too many risks on the bubble. I absolutely lose my mind on the bubble of most tournaments that I play in. The only exception would be a lot of larger stacks at my table, particularly if those players are to my left. And if I feel like my opponents are also not concerned about the min cash than trying to... The whole point of going crazy on the bubble is that most players really care about cashing. So I can generally take advantage of most players and their desire to just make sure they win some amount of money for their hard work. And as a result of that mentality, many of my opponents will fold hands that they should not in an effort to make that happen for themselves and so because of that I can typically abuse a bubble by just putting them all to the test and I've seen some pretty ridiculous folds where they actually fold face up to say you know I don't want to lose right now because we're almost in the money and I know it's just a $500 buy-in and that's infinitely more true in a $10,000 main event where many of my opponents would be Uh, satellite winners or whatever but I think it's even true in a smaller event like like this one so that is my mindset well as a result of that mindset the downside is that I bubble more than you do I'm willing to bet that whoever you are listening to this I have more bubbles to my quote-unquote credit than you do because every once in a while you go crazy on a bubble And you just run into a bunch of hands and you go from a chip leader to a short stack and then you end up not even cashing 
in the tournament. So many of you, after doing that, would probably go home and kick yourself and say, what's wrong with me? Why did I punt? I love that word. You know, poker players like to talk about, I, I punted my stack. Uh, no, you didn't. You know, Within reason, if you have a strategy and you choose to implement that strategy and it doesn't work out, you shouldn't immediately assume that you have made some kind of mistake. Like I shouldn't have punted my stack. You know, I've won 39, I think, or 40 first place uh, finishes in poker tournaments in my career. Now that includes like daily $100 buy-in at my local Atlantic City card room years ago when you'd get like 200 players at the Taj Mahal or something. So I'm not not all first place finishes are created equal, right? I never won the super high roller bowl and we know that. But what I've noticed about my playing style is that the downside is you bubble a lot. But the trade-off for that is that when the bubble bursts, 90% of the time that I'm on the right side of that bubble bursting, I've, I come out of it with a chip lead. It makes sense, right? I mean, I'm, I'm aggressive, I'm attacking, and people are folding, 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 and I keep abusing them, and they're basically just holding their breath and waiting for the bubble to be over so that they can say, hey, I finished in the money. Well, while they're doing that, I'm accumulating lots and lots of chips. So when that happens, and it goes my way, and you know I don't run into aces or whatever, I come out of that with a chip lead. Likewise, there's another bubble in most tournaments which is everybody wants to say, hey, I made it to the final table. A lot of people really tighten up right towards the, you could call it the final table bubble. And that's a time when my general approach, my typical strategy would be to, again, really open up my game, uh, throw all the charts and graphs, snap shove and push fold out the window and just kind of go crazy. Because when I get to the final table, I like to be the chip leader. And I keep stats on this of what position I'm in upon arrival at the final table. And of all the final tables I've made in my career online and live, 82% of those tournaments, I arrived at the final table with a top three chip stack. So I also have bubbled a lot of final tables trying to accumulate that stack. My philosophy of poker, I'm trying to win the tournament. Most players might know correct strategy for bubble play, but do they actually implement it? So in other words, if it's folded to me in a small blind and I shove and for you to call off your whole stack with one player left before we're in the money, you're supposed to call with a pretty wide range, especially if you know that I'm shoving, let's say 100% of my range. There are a lot of hands you should be you should be calling with that most of you are folding. Uh, I've never seen someone call with like a king deuce in that situation. I, I didn't put numbers on it. So obviously if we're both really short, that's different. But I'm talking about, say you have an average stack and I have you covered by, say I have a two times average stack, which is kind of typical for where I would be around this time in a tournament where I got to this point. If I made it to that point and we're now on the bubble, I probably have a lot of chips. And so if I'm in the small blind, and I shove into the big blind, what's the worst hand you would call me with knowing that if you lose this pot, you're not going to win any money? Even if you know theoretically that that is, I believe it's actually queen seven, right? Uh, you, you're supposed to have queen seven or better. If, if you know 
that that's what you should call with, but you actually look at that exact hand or even a little better, let's say queen nine, queen eight, king deuce. How many of you are going to pull the trigger on a call? So I have found that players, you know, quote unquote, wait for a better spot. And while they're waiting for a better spot, I'm taking every spot and getting all the chips. So, I mean, of course it doesn't work out every time. And like I say, I bubble more than anybody and I've learned to just, you know, accept the variance and the disappointment. I have a strategy and against most opponents, it is a profitable strategy and it's one that has served me quite well, including last night where I arrived at that final table, second in chips. A couple of things went really well early at the final table and very soon I had the chip lead and I did give it up once, but not until I was heads up and we both had really good hands. And then basically I had, I think 60% and he had 40%. And then after that, he had 80% and I had 20%. But of course, by then the blinds are so big and everything's more or less a crapshoot and things kind of went my way. Eventually got it all in with my pocket Kings against his ACE nine suited. And that was the final hand of the tournament. But Really, it all starts with the basic strategy and the philosophy that I have going into pretty much every tournament I play. Unless proven otherwise, I assume that my opponents will all be too tight on the bubble, that many of them will also fold too much during final table play because so many training sites, Tournament Poker Edge among them, advise players, you know, don't commit ICM suicide. You can make money by folding. And I think that some players take these concepts too far. I also readily and freely admit that I don't take them far enough and that I make a lot of ICM mistakes. I'm working on that part of my game, believe it or not. And I have had a few more min caches in recent history than I probably did in the first you know, 12 years of my poker career. But it's not really my style. But I am learning that min caching is valuable. So I wanted to bring up a hand because, you know, as you guys know, my general strategy in tournament poker is exploitative. Of course, I essentially worship and idolize Andrew Brokus, TPE coach and dear friend of mine. Uh, I believe that Andrew Brokus has more poker knowledge and theoretical understanding in his little finger than I will in my whole body at any point in my life. So that's a, a huge endorsement of him. And to me, just being able to have access to Andrew's videos is well worth the $25 a month it costs to be a TPE member. But you've heard me say that before. If you haven't signed up yet, by the way, I don't know what you're waiting for. So anyway, Andrew has mentioned to me several times the importance of those min caches. You know, they're important for your bankroll. They keep you afloat. They can turn a big loss into a small win. Uh, and all of that is on some level understood by me. But I think that what generally happens and what I'm working on, and I really am working on this, is in the heat of battle, the spirit of competition tends to get the best of me. And I say, I won't be happy if I get 89th place out of 912 players and I win just a little bit more than I paid to play. I'd actually be more disappointed by that than I would by 
going for it on the bubble <laughs> and and losing it all. Uh, but I've, I've learned to, to identify spots where that's just a stupid idea. And I don't do that quite as often as I used to, but I'd still do it way more often than I theoretically should. So that's what I did in this $100 warm-up event, as they called it. As I mentioned, it was a $15,000 guarantee for $100 buy-in, and they ended up with something like $28,000 in the prize pool. So it was a, a really a great event all around. So here's a hand that I played last night in that event. Okay, so this is towards the end of the event. There are 22 players remaining. Uh, the average stack at this point was 300,000. And I am in seventh place with 460,000. So uh, the blinds are 7,500 and 15,000. Uh, so again, we have 460,000. So our M is 13. We have, what is that, 30, 31 big blinds. We had a seven-handed table with 22 players left. Two folds, and then the player in the hijack raises to 40,000 with 210,000 behind. And the action is folded to me in the big blind, and I've got a king of diamonds jack of diamonds so a suited king jack so before we talk about what i did let's talk a little bit about this opponent since we're going if we choose to play this hand we will do so heads up against this player in the hijack okay so he is a recreational player very very loose um mostly passive I've seen him go all the way to the river with ace high, calling bets all the way down um, with ace jack on like a 10 high board, even calling a river bet with just ace jack high. Uh, so he is, he's got some calling station tendencies, you could say. Uh, his style is mostly loose passive. So now here he's opening, which could mean a lot of things. Not necessarily saying that he never raises, but his post-flop strategy is more that he likes to call. Uh, that, that is the, the main read on him, that he's not a folder. So we decide to go ahead and call. You could 3-bet here if you want, but uh, this guy, he's only got 210,000 chips. Again, blinds are 7,515,000. So he's got uh, 17 big blinds. Uh, his M is eight. So however you want to look at it, he is relatively short. And if we three bet, we may as well shove all in on him. And I'm just not sure I want to do that here with the King Jack of Diamonds. It's a defensible play, but we're just not ahead of that many hands in his range. But yeah, I, I think it's better to just go ahead and call and see a flop here. So we do that. We call and the pot has 100,000 in it. Opponent, again, has 210,000 behind. So his SPR is around two, and he's got the effective stack here. So we're playing pretty short. Uh, the flop comes king, seven, six, with two spades. King of clubs, seven of spades, six of spades. Again, we have the king jack of diamonds. You have to check to the razor here. Give him a chance to fire. 
he, he might bet if he has a flush draw or he might bet with air. Of course, he could have his beat if he's got a better king or pocket aces or a set or 7-6, but most likely uh, we're going to be good quite a bit here. So I'm checking, planning to call a bet, and actually hoping that our opponent does bet. Uh, he obliges with a 50K into 100K, so he bets half the pot here. All right, now we're up against a calling station, and we have what is in all likelihood the better hand. So there is a very strong case, believe it or not, to be made for check shoving here. Now against any normal opponent, any decent opponent, check shoving here is suicidal because you really can't get called by worse, right? I mean, if my opponent is competent, then yeah, I guess I could get called by worse when he has something like ace five of spades or maybe uh, some kind of pair and a flush draw or straight flush draw with nine eight of spades. Like There are some hands that would probably have to call depending on exactly how many outs he perceives himself to have if we check shove. Uh, so that's fine if you want to play that game. But, you know, against some of those hands, we might not even be a big favorite, like against uh, a pair and a flush draw combo or, you know, ace-king of spades is a possibility. So against those hands, we are just, you know, in really bad shape. So I decide to go ahead and just just call here. But you could definitely check shove here, especially with such a, a small, such a low SPR, but I just checked and called with my top pair jack kicker. Now, uh, let's see. So after I call, my opponent now has 160,000 and the pot has 200,000 in it. So he's got less than a pot size bet left, and that's very important in why I make my decision on the turn. So the turn hits, it's a deuce of spades. So now our board is king of clubs, seven of spades, six of spades, deuce of spades. So king, seven, six, deuce with three spades. Uh, for many players, this would be a scare card. And against many opponents, I would worry that this this card is, is not only going to kill my action, but I might might have even lost. Now, of course, it's possible that this card just killed us. So if our opponent had the flush draw on the flop, uh, we are beat. Also, we're beat if he has a better king or a set, right? So he could have a flush, he could have a set, or he could have a better king or pocket aces, right? He could also have us beat if he has 7-6 uh, for two pair. But I'm not sure that this, uh, this opponent would have raised with that hand coming in because I have seen him limp into a few pots before so I, I kind of discounted 7-6 as part of his range so I think that if I check my opponent will fear that I've made a flush I, I think that the most likely outcome if I check is that our opponent will check and then whatever the river is would also most likely go check check again uh, because it's possible that my opponent has one spade in his hand, of course, I decided it might be best to just 
go ahead and bet here. And because his stack is so short, I bet enough to put him all in. Now, again, this is a very opponent-specific play that I'm making here. This is not a standard play that you would do with just King Jack. I, I mean, I can't, I can't make better than... Well, I guess the best hand I can hope to make on this board is trips. So I don't really have a draw here. I just have a king with a jack kicker. I believe there are many, many hands that I can get my opponent to call me with worse that he won't bet if I check. So because I'm trying to get maximum value for my hand, and also there's a protection factor, I'm going to go ahead and fade the possibility that this opponent got lucky and made a flush. So I shove. And I happen to be right. I'm still not sure if this play is even good, even against this opponent. But this this was my rationale for doing it. And also, I'm still thinking about that final table and how I need to take some chances now to try to accumulate. There are only 22 players left. And I have work to do to get my stack up to where I want it to be when we start the final table. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of my mentality, which I'm sure is flawed because most... Coaches will tell you to think about EV, chip EV, tournament EV, to use that as your rationale in making your decisions as opposed to some arbitrary chip goal, which I agree are, are generally silly, you know, to say at the end of this level, I'd like to have 30% more chips than I do in this level. I believe that sort of mentality is not helpful. It does factor into when I have a decision that's close, I kind of say, and this is what I said earlier about ICM, coming back to that, I say, forget ICM and what would happen if I lose this hand and whether the chips that I win are less valuable than the chips that I lose because survival is important. And all of that Sklansky game theory stuff, I do tend to throw it out the window more often than I should. But in this particular spot, I think that I have a strong rationale for believing that I can get more value for my hand and that the only way to do so is to bet it now on the turn and put my opponent to the test. Also, if he happens to fold a spade, then we actually win in a sense because we protect our equity. Uh, he's not getting the correct price to call the shove here on the turn with one card to come. So we actually don't mind either way if he calls because he actually has outs. He can win this hand now with a spade or any ace, assuming he's got something like ace-queen with the ace of spades. So if he calls, it's a bad call, so we theoretically make money there. And if he folds, it's a good fold, but it also helps us because uh, we get to preserve our equity and protect our hand. So for all of those reasons, now that's only against that one particular possible hand, but really he has outs if he has any type of spade in his hand. Even if he has something like pocket eights, he can win with an eight or a, or a, or a spade. So I'm happy if he calls in that spot and I'm also happy if he folds. So I'm giving him a dilemma. So yeah, he does call and he's got the ace deuce off suit so he's got the ace of spades and the deuce of clubs so he had nothing on the flop he has a pair of deuces on the turn and decides to call because he knows he can win 
with a spade, and he figures he can probably also win with any ace and any deuce. So he's got plenty of outs, but he missed them all, thankfully. And this was actually the hand that gave me the uh, chip lead in this tournament. I was in second right when the final table started, and then, uh, as we know, went on to to win it. So a little bit of an unusual hand and played in certainly what I think is an unusual way uh, by me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Tweet me at Clayton Comic and let me know what you think of this one. I should have plenty more hands to talk about with all of you here on the podcast in future episodes because I do intend to play at least 10 to 15 of these daily bracelet events on WSOP.com in the month of July. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you all so much for listening. Love nobody. Everybody, everybody knows she can't read them.